Amen. We'll turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We want to take the last uh, part of the chapter. We want to start with verse 14 down through verse 21 this morning and talk about Paul's prayer. This is the second prayer that Paul prays in uh, uh, the, the letter that he writes to the church at Ephesus. And in my opinion, it's the, it's the second of the two great prayers for the church. Now, if you, if you go through the, God, the uh, epistles and uh, read the things that Paul wrote in almost every letter that he wrote, he writes to the church about something that he prays for them. And um, uh, sometimes it's longer, sometimes it's shorter. But, uh, but these two prayers in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3, are really the, uh, well, for lack of a better way to say it, the signature prayers in my opinion. Now, in, um, uh, in looking at this prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, and it's, I, I can't overemphasize the importance of these seven verses because Paul is praying something for the church that is the summation of everything that God intended from before the worlds were created. And it's, um, uh, if you'll notice in verse 14, he says, for this cause. Those are the key words. Because if you don't understand the cause for what he's praying, you're not going to get the prayer. If you'll remember over in chapter 1, Paul uh, tells us about God's eternal purpose, about uh, that God planned to, to redeem mankind and make a family for himself. And as a result, he starts off in verse 16 of, Romans, of uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And he says, uh, he prays certain things specifically that the eyes of our understanding, our spiritual understanding would be open, that we'd know who we are in Christ, what belongs to us because of Jesus' sacrifice. In other words, the, the benefits, the riches of the glory of the redemptive work of Jesus. And it's for that cause because of God's eternal purpose for redemption of mankind that he prays. Well, in chapter 3, it's the same thing, only as a different cause. If we're going to understand the cause, we're going to have to go back to earlier in the chapter where he identifies the foundation for what he's praying and why he's praying it. Now, if you look with me in Ephesians chapter 3 in verse... Uh, oh, I don't want to read the whole thing. Let me... Um, uh, well, let me make some comments and then we'll start reading in verse 10. Paul talks about in chapter 3, the first part of chapter 3, he talks about the fellowship of the mystery. He talks about the mystery that was hidden from the world from ages past, even hidden from the Jews uh, who had the revelation of the, the law of Moses. He said the mystery is to make of himself one family of both Jews and Gentiles, to make the Gentiles fellow heirs with the Jews in this eternal plan of redemption. This plan of redemption that God came up with and originated before the world was ever formed. Not just before mankind was created, but before the world was formed in the beginning. In other words, this was always God's purpose. It was always God's purpose to have one family. It was always God's purpose for that one family to be made up of men and women who were born again redeemed from the curse of the law, redeemed from spiritual death, made righteous by the blood of Jesus to this end. Notice verse 10, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. To this end, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. 
Now, if you just take that verse out of his setting, it's like, well, that sounds like King James English, and we're not even sure what he's trying to get across. But remember how this letter came about. This letter, the letter to, to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians are parallel letters. Now, from that, we understand, uh, we understand that that's the case because they, they cover the same subjects, almost chapter for chapter. But there is a difference in the two letters. The, the church at Colossae was being inundated with wrong teaching. The wrong teaching Paul identifies specifically in the letter that he writes to them in order to correct the, the heresy and the, the wrong doctrine that's, uh, that's out there. The letter to the Ephesians covers it from a more of a big picture standpoint. The letter to the Colossians is here's how, here's how to fix the wrong teaching that's uh, in the midst of the church. The letter to the Ephesians is here's what the church should look like. The universal church should look like. Now, a part of the teaching we understand from the letter to the Colossians, a part of the teaching was a wrong emphasis on spirit beings, angels, but also evil spirits. Paul says in um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, I believe it is, Paul says, don't let anybody cheat you out of your reward. King James says beguile you, but it literally means don't let anybody cheat you out of your reward through a voluntary humility or worshiping of angels. Well, that's the teaching that was going on. They were being taught. Somebody had come in from the outside and were teaching the church at Colossae that evil spirits and as well as angels had a much higher place in God's line of, uh, of order than man did. And so we need to give homage to evil spirits. Well, basically, that's idolatry. That's what the, these pagan nations were doing when they were offering sacrifice to idols and so forth, they were trying to appease some unseen spirit being. Well, it, was, it had crept back in to the church under a different name and, and a different, uh, uh, well, it was dressed up differently, but it's still the same thing. So Paul's talking about the order. When he writes to the Ephesians, he's talking about the order. One of the things he talks about, at least, is the order of man in God's creative line. And so he says, here's God's, purpose the purpose for redemption the mystery that was held from the ages was ephesians 3:10 to show principalities and powers the glory of god working through his redemptive creature in other words god's plan as revealed by paul through the holy ghost god's plan is for you to be the proof that the devil is defeated for this cause, verse 14, for this cause, knowing where man falls in God's line of order, not below evil spirits, not below angels, but above them, for this cause, I, Paul, I'm sorry, got the wrong verse, verse 14, for this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, folks, we call ourselves Christians. God doesn't. Families aren't named after the older brother. Families are named after the father. And so what this is saying is God wanted a family for himself. The redemptive work that's described in chapter 1, the intent for this redeemed family to reveal the glory of God to angels and demons, is all because it's a part of the father's family. 
For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Notice part of the family is in heaven, part of the family is in earth. Same family. When somebody dies, either us or a loved one dies and goes to heaven, we leave this earth, but we don't leave the family. God's plan is to gather the family together when Jesus comes back. He'll take the part of the family that's on the earth and gather it together with the part of the family that's already in heaven. And there we'll be joined to him to spend eternity with him. Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That he, the father of the family, would grant you. Folks, everything is based on relationship. Everything is based on relationship. You know, so much of our wrong ideas and wrong concepts of God are because of our lousy relationships with our own family. It's tough to see God as a good father if you had a bad one. Which is the very reason that there's such an attack on the family in our society. Because the devil knows how it works, whether people have figured it out or not. The devil knows how it works. The devil knows that if he can separate you from your earthly father... If he can drive a wedge between the children and the fathers, then the understanding that those children will have as they grow up about God being a good and heavenly father will be forever marred. And it takes some serious spiritual effort to overcome the idea and the uh, the experience of having a lousy natural father to come to understand that God only wants wants good for you. It can be done. And I encourage you, if you had a lousy experience with your natural father, that that's going to be an area where you're going to have to work extra hard. God's intent is for natural fathers here on the earth to be examples of his goodness toward us. Now, if you had that kind of experience, believing God to be good all the time and working on your behalf, it becomes a simple thing. We owe that to our children. I can't do anything about my relationship with my father and it wasn't, a, it wasn't always rosy. He was not a person that kept his word, at least to his family. He was known as somebody that kept his word to other people in business and so forth. But to his family, you could pretty much tell when he was lying when his lips were removed. And I have no idea why that was. I, have, I mean, there were things that he told us that he would do that, that weren't required. He just wouldn't keep his word to his family. I can't do anything about that. But I can sure do something about it with my kids. I can sure change that cycle with my kids. We have that responsibility. That he, the father of the family, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Now, folks, this is Paul's prayer. He prays that because God's plan is to show his glory to the angels and the demons... Through you, through the church. Here's his prayer that we would be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Can I ask you something? What does that phrase mean to you? If you're like most people, it means you're looking for God to give you something you don't already have. Somehow, some way, it's going to come from the outside if it comes at all. But it doesn't seem to come to many. So they become just empty words. Paul is not praying empty words. 
He's praying a prayer that's inspired by the Holy Ghost that the Holy Ghost will bring to pass, strengthened by the Spirit of might. That's the Holy Spirit in your spirit. Why would the Holy Ghost impress Paul to pray and to leave a record for a prayer that he himself can fulfill if God didn't intend to fulfill it? That'd be kind of cruel, wouldn't it? I mean, if I'm with my kids and I say, you know, if you just ask me, I'll take you to Disneyland. And then they ask me and I say, oh, I was just kidding. Man, I'm going to have to check my food for the next couple of days. That's not how it works, is it? That's exactly what is happening here. The Holy Ghost is saying, Paul, pray this because this is the will of God to accomplish in you. And in all the church. That we would be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. What does that mean? Well, the word strengthened is the word for rule. It's kratos in the, in the, in the Greek. And it means ruling power. The word might is the word dunamis. It's the word that's translated power most of the other places in the New Testament. It's the word power. It means inherent power. Well, how do you access God's power, his ability? Paul said, writing to the Romans, Romans 1.16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, the dunamis of God unto salvation, to save, to rescue, to heal, to deliver. It's the word of God that is the power of God. How do you access the power of God through his word? By faith. You know what he's praying? He's praying that your lives would be ruled by faith to access God's power. He's praying that the father of the family, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, would grant to you according to the riches of his glory. In other words, that which has already been accomplished by Jesus. This is not something that God's got to say, well, I don't normally do this, but okay. No, this is something that's already been accomplished. The riches of the glory have already been accomplished through the finished work of Jesus. He's praying that God would, according to that which has already been done, grant us that our lives would be ruled. Our lives, our inner man, our spirit lives, would be ruled by faith to access his power. To what end? That Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. That Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. Now, folks, think about what he's not saying. He can't be talking about getting saved. These people are already saved. So he's not talking about Jesus coming into their hearts. He's talking about Jesus dwelling there. What does that tell us? It tells us the big difference between being saved and being ruled by faith. You remember in John 17, John 17, verse 7, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, if you abide in me, this word dwell is also the word abide. Same word. If you abide in me or dwell in me and my word abides or dwells in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Do you know what these verses are telling us? That the Holy Ghost is inspiring Paul to pray for us, which reveals to us, to us what God's will is for our lives. God's will for our lives is that we should be so ruled and governed by faith in him and in his word 
that we conquer every attack of the enemy. Now, folks, you may think, well, yeah, I knew that already. Think about what he's saying. He's saying by the Holy Ghost, God wants you to pray and operate in such a way so that the devil has no room for victory in any area of your life because that's the way that God manifests his glory throughout all the ages of the world. In other words, every attack of the enemy that you withstand in faith, you're glorifying God. You're part of God's eternal purpose. It's the way God planned it from the beginning. Think about that from God's standpoint. There was a day when God put his man here on the earth, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where they fell. And at that point in time, the devil thought he had mankind forever. He did everything he could, I'm sure, to rub God's nose in it. The greatest of your creation, the one that was created even above the angels, even above me, Lucifer could say. Now he's subject to me. Now he's under my control. Looked like everything was gone except for God's plan of redemption. Jesus comes to the earth. Jesus begins to operate outside of the curse of spiritual death. He starts doing miracles by the anointing of the Holy Ghost. He's operating as a righteous man according to the Old Testament law. He's never broken the law. He's always kept it. And so he's operating in the fullness of Abraham's blessing in every way possible. And everybody sees there's a difference about him. We get the idea that people looked at Jesus and said, wow, he's got to be the son of God. Jesus didn't operate here on the, uh, on the earth as the son of God according to his own testimony. He operated here on the earth as a righteous man according to the law. So when we look at Jesus, we can see what God intended mankind to be here on the earth. Was Jesus hindered by lack? No, when there wasn't food, he made multiplied loaves and fishes. When there wasn't wine, he changed the molecular structure of water and turned it into wine. When he was without a way to get from one place to another, he walked on the water. When the crowd wanted to throw him off the brow of the cliff because he didn't like what he was saying, he turned around and walked through the midst of them. What did this result in by Jesus conquering the work of the devil against him time after time after time. He glorified God. That's what God intended for you and me. That's why he gave us his life, meaning Jesus' life, as a substitute. There was an exchange made. That exchange was he took your death on the cross. He didn't deserve it. He didn't do anything to earn it. But God put your death on him so that he could put his life on you you didn't deserve it you didn't do anything to earn it but that's part of the swap that's part of the exchange that's exactly what this verse is saying it's saying god's intended purpose from before the world was ever created see we think that we get in trouble and we and and somehow we need to talk god into doing something for us oh lord here i am i'm in financial trouble Please help me. I claim whatever I need, whatever monies I need to meet this need and and to pay the bills or whatever the case is. Please, Lord, please, 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 please do it for me. God's looking at it and saying, you don't have to bother me about that. 
Stand in faith according to what my word has already said has been done for you because this was my eternal purpose for you to conquer the lack that's here on the earth. Sickness and disease attacks us. We say, oh, Lord, please let me be good enough. Hopefully I've been good enough to earn the, 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 the healing work of Jesus that he accomplished on the cross. God says, this is what my eternal purpose and plan was all about. So that you could conquer the temptations of the enemy, whether they be physical, whether they be mental, or whether they be spiritual. God planned for you to win every time. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, if God planned it that way, why is the church in so much trouble? Because we're not ruled by faith. We're ruled by fear in many cases. We're ruled by other ideas contrary to the word. Any number of things. It's only being ruled or strengthened with might through the operation of faith that we're going to conquer the work of the devil. That Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. What does it take for Jesus to get comfortable living in you? He lives in everybody that's that's confessed him as Lord and Savior. But what does it take for him to get comfortable abiding in you? The word. The word. Because Jesus and the word are one. Jesus is the word made flesh. So to the degree that we live according to the word of God. That's the degree that Christ is going to dwell in our heart by faith. Notice the next thing he says. The next part of the purpose is that we being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded in love. Why do we need to be rooted and grounded in love? Well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, the Bible says God is love. So when we operate in love, we're showing forth his character and nature. Jesus said in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give unto you, that you would love one another as I have loved you. He said, by this, the new commandment of love, shall all men know that you're my disciples. He didn't say they'd know you're my disciples because you conquered the devil. He didn't say they'd know you're my disciples because of your great knowledge. He said that the world would know that we're disciples of God because of the love of God shown. Now, can you separate the love of God from victory? No. Can you separate the love of God from knowledge of the word? No. But love is always supposed to be the foundation. Furthermore, the Bible says in Galatians 5, 6 that faith works by love. So you can't be strengthened with might or ruled by faith unless you're operating in the love of God because your faith won't work. Faith has to have a foundation of the love of God. Now, what is the main thing that keeps our faith from working? Usually fear. Unbelief is usually sparked and originates in fear. What does John write to the church and tell us about love and fear? He said, perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because perfect love is, is results in faith in God's word. And faith in God's word dispels fear every time. That Christ may dwell in your heart by faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love. May be able to comprehend. May be able to comprehend. Now I want you to understand something. There's a difference between uh, living by faith. Or being ruled by faith in the inner man and comprehending. There are some things you can know spiritually that your mind doesn't grasp yet. And really, if you think about it, the the whole idea of revelation, you know you've had this experience as much as I have. There are times where you read the Word of God and all of a sudden, it may be a scripture you've read a thousand times. But you see something in there and it comes alive. 
Well, what happened? Did you just find out that scripture was there? No, you've seen it many, many times. Well, what did take place? The truth of what you knew from your heart was already there, exploded into your mind. That's what revelation knowledge is. Revelation knowledge is spiritual truth that explodes in our minds. And when we see it, it's like, whoa, where did that come from? What's been there all the time? Why didn't we see it before? There was something about it we didn't comprehend. So Paul is praying that by being ruled by faith and grounded in love, we would have spiritual revelation about certain things. We may comprehend that we might comprehend with all the saints. Don't overlook that phrase, with all the saints. There's such an attitude, especially in the American church, that we don't need anybody. We can make it on our own. No, we're supposed to comprehend with all the saints. The idea that we can make it as, uh, as well or make it as successfully on our own without the fellowship of other believers is foolish. Yet that's the number one thing the devil does. The devil will try to bring offense or some, and it may be offense because of something that's done or it may be just uh, pride that he brings against somebody and wrong thinking or whatever the case is, but he tries to separate them from a group of believers. Well, once it gets you separated, then you become an easy target. Even the animal kingdom works this way. Lions and wild animals charge the herd, trying to separate one from the herd. The herd goes one way. The individual goes another way. Where does he go? He doesn't follow the herd. He follows the individual. T.L. Osborne used to say it like this. The banana that gets pulled away from the bunch is the one that gets peeled. I don't think you can do any better than that. And that's exactly his purpose. Because then you get in trouble and where do you go? The Bible says in Acts chapter 4 that being let go, Paul and, and uh, uh, Peter and John, excuse me, after being threatened by the Jewish council, went to their own company. Well, if you've been pulled away and you don't have your own company, where do you go when you're in trouble? And that's the case with so many believers. They've separated themselves They become easy targets for the devil and they have nowhere to go for help and support. Paul's praying that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. What's he saying? He's saying God wants us to realize something. He's saying God wants to reveal certain things to us. What does he want to reveal to us? Well, notice the word breadth. What is the word breadth? The word breadth in the original Greek comes from a word that means storage containers or compartments. He's talking about the word. He's talking about the word. He's talking about living a balanced lifestyle according to the word. Christ dwelling in our heart by faith, rooted and grounded in love, able to see what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, some people get off on a tangent. Some people are this way with the subject of faith. Some people think that faith is the only thing that there is. They learned about faith. It changed their life. And so faith, 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 faith is it. Well, faith is one of the keys of the kingdom. But Jesus didn't say, I will give you the key of the kingdom. He said keys. Which means we need to be just as developed in love as we are in faith. We need to be just as developed in prayer. 
We need to be just as developed in giving. We need to be just as developed in hospitality. We need to be just as developed in the other fruit of the Spirit as we are in our favorite little subjects. And that's the breadth. When it talks about the love of God, how do you know about the love of God? Where do you find out about the love of God? Does God just separate you, your mind and your own business, walking through life in your unsaved condition, and all of a sudden God does something to show you he loves you, writes in the sky, creates a billboard just for you, and you come to realize, oh, God loves me. No, we find out through the word. So many Christians are hindered in their spiritual development because they're going only by their experience. And they've never experienced the love of God the way the Bible talks about, so they accept, well, the Bible can't really mean what it says. When in fact, the Bible means exactly what it says, and the only way you can ever understand or ever experience what the Bible refers to is gaining a knowledge of the Word. You know as well as I do that so much of the church world is judging the Bible by their experience when exactly the opposite is what we ought to be doing. We ought to be judging our experience by the Bible, judging our experience by what the Word says because heaven and earth will pass away. Your experience will pass away. The Word will never fail. So we ought to stick with the eternal part of things to judge the temporal or the temporary things in life, shouldn't we? So he's praying that we would comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the storage of the word of God, the entirety, that we need to be developed and create a balanced Christian life. Why? Because the devil is going to attack you in different areas. You may know how to, uh, uh, well, I I can give you some examples about this. John G. Lake was used by the the, uh, spirit of God in some marvelous, marvelous way where healing was concerned. He started a um, church work in um, uh, South Africa that turned into a denomination that's still going strong today. Some hundred and, well, almost hundred years later. He came back to the States after his, his, his wife died. And he started a, a healing ministry in the uh, state of Washington. And there were such results that the newspapers would publish not only a sermon but their healing rooms. They had healing rooms, places where people would come in the city to be prayed for. They would publish the healing room's reports on the front page of the newspaper, city paper. It was, this was in Spokane, Washington. It was identified during the time that he was in the healing rooms that there were over 500,000 documented cases of physical healing. Doctors documenting, yeah, this was my patient, now they don't have what they had before. Many of those terminal cases, many of them. It was identified that, that uh, the city of Spokane, Washington, was the single healthiest city in the United States during the time that Lake's ministry was taking place there. But Lake never got a handle on believing God for finances, ever. By his own admission, he said, I don't understand why my faith is not as equally developed in finances as it is for healing. But I've never been able to get a hold of that. He would have been able to do even more work 
glorify God and even greater results if he'd been able to develop his faith for finances in the same measure. But where do you think the devil attacked him? Not with physical sickness, with finances. There were things that happened throughout John Lake's ministry that robbed his, finan- robbed his ministry of finances, decimated his ministry of finances four different times. There were almost four different times where he almost had to start over from scratch because of the, the work of the enemy in the area of finances. Can you see the, re- the importance and the necessity of being developed in all the areas of life? So that you can repel the works of the enemy and the attack of the enemy no matter where he chooses to attack you. Because he knows where your weak point is. He knows where your weak spot is. We need to be ready. What's going to bring that about? How are we going to be ruled by faith in every area? By understanding the whole of the word of God. The breadth of God's word. And the love that he showed us by giving us the victory. The next thing that he makes mention of is the length. The word length has to do with time. We think size. We think breadth, length, depth, and height. We think size. And we can uh, imagine three dimensions, but what's a fourth dimension? We have trouble relating to it, but length has to do with time. Time meaning dispensations. It's necessary for the church, the believer who's strong in the Lord, to know what time he's living in. To know what's next on God's timeline. I think it's more important to know the, the, uh, what the Bible says about the last days in our day than ever before. And when you understand what the Bible says about the last days, you can judge the things that are taking place and not be moved and not be shaken like the rest of the world is. I've got pastor friends that are just beside themselves as what's happening politically. Well, I'm not surprised at all. Because I see what the Bible talks about as far as the timeline is concerned. I've got pastor friends that are, that are so concerned with taking our country back politically. Well, good luck with that. That's not going to happen. But if you want to spin your wheels and work diligently and effortlessly, I mean, um, um, without giving up in that area, okay. But see, when I see what the Bible says about the last days, and the end times and the condition of the world and the church, it helps me stay focused on what I'm supposed to do. And I've noticed that I live in so much greater level and uh, measure of peace than those other guys do. Man, they're just beside themselves. They're wringing their hands. Is it going to be Trump? Is it going to be Cruz? Is it going to be Parson? Is it, oh my God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What if it's Hillary? I'm not worried about any of it. Because what God said is going to happen toward the end is going to happen no matter who gets the election. Would I like to see some things roll back and go back to the good old days? Would I like to see another Ronald Reagan come along? Yeah, I really would. Is that going to happen? Not a chance in the world. So it's important to know where you live. It's important to know where you're living on God's timeline. It's important to know where you are relative to current events and what's coming next. Now, some people, bless their hearts, no matter what you tell them, they won't accept it because they want it their way. Okay. It's still going to be the way God said it's going to be. But we need to comprehend those things. We need a revelation of those things. The next thing it talks about 
is uh, depth and height. Now, depth and height, one has to do with vertical measure, the other has to do with horizontal measure. The vertical measure, the height, has to do with your love relationship with God. The horizontal measure is the one that has to do with your love relationship with one another. So notice the four things that Paul is saying that we need to comprehend. He's saying we need to be ruled by faith to such a degree that these four things are comprehended, understood. And this is not just you and me as as special believers. He wants this understanding to the whole church. Number one, our rights and privileges according to the word of God in order that we can live a Christian, a balanced Christian life. Secondly, where we live in God's timeline. Thirdly, our love relationship with God. And fourthly, our love relationship with people. Now, can I ask you a question? If we were conquering and operating according to the word in those four areas, what do we lack? What's not taken care of if we've got those four areas covered? What's missing? Not a thing in the world. That would cover the entirety and the totality of the Christian life. And he's saying we should be ruled by faith in all of those areas. Finally, he mentions one other thing. And to know, experience the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. That we would experience the love of Christ. Now, why didn't he put that one first? Seems like that would be the one that we'd want to know and and, uh, have a handle on first and foremost, isn't it? The reason he put this last is because you're not going to experience. The word no is to determine by experience. You're not going to experience the love of God unless you operate according to faith in all areas of the word. You're not going to know the love of God unless you understand where you live in God's timeline. You're not going to know the love of God and experience the love of God in your life unless you've got the right kind of love relationship with him. And you're not going to experience the love of God in your life unless you have the right kind of relationship, love relationship with other believers. See, knowing and experiencing the love of God, which so much of the church world is longing for but missing out on, the reason that they're missing out on it is because they're not putting the word first in the other areas to develop. But if we will, and remember this is Paul's big picture point of view. This is where he pulls back and looks at the church and says, this is what the church should look like. We can say it this way. This is what every believer should look like. Why? Because God wants to bring himself glory through you. You remember I I just quoted uh, John 15 verse 7 a few minutes ago. Talking about love dwelling in us. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Verse 8 is the one that I didn't refer to. The next verse. He said, herein, in this way, you asking what you will and it being done for you. You getting your prayers answered. You conquering the work of the devil and the temptations and the hindrances of the devil in this life. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. What is it that brings God glory? The word working in you. What is it that brings God glory? You ruling by faith over the circumstances of of life and the attacks of the enemy. What is it that brings God glory? Your words coming to pass because your words are spoken in faith. That's what gives God glory. Jesus told us. Paul just reveals it to us as the mystery that was hid from the ages. 
It's the same thing. God wants us to know to experience his love in every area of our life, in the area of healing. He wants us to experience his love in the area of finances and provision. He wants us to experience his love in the area of peace. He wants us to experience his love in our family relationships. He wants us to experience his love on our jobs. He wants us to win in every way to such a degree that we are overwhelmed with his love because we put the word word to work and put it first place in our lives. And that's what glorifies God. Now think about how the church approaches this. The church tries to come up with ways that we can glorify God. Let's come up with some kind of church program that will glorify God. The church program that's supposed to glorify God is you being ruled by faith. There's already a church program in place to take care of it. It's called the word of God being put in practice by the believer. That's why it's so important over and over and over again that the scripture tells us we walk by faith and not by sight. Why? Because that's what brings God glory. Do you realize that it honors God when you act according to his word in spite of circumstances? That honors God. We want God to honor us by making his power manifest in our lives. Well, how does that come about as a result of you honoring God by putting his word first place? That's how you access his power and his goodness. And that you would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Which passes knowledge. What's he saying? He's saying we'll experience things that our minds won't even be able to accept or take hold of. We'll experience the love of God and our mind will say, wow, who knew it went that far? In other words, he's talking about you experiencing a relationship with God and experiencing results from God in a greater way that you're able to think. God's always going to be bigger than what you think. And Paul expands on that a few verses down the way to talk about how big God is. Notice what he says. He says, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled. Everybody say filled. This literally from the Greek means filled to the full. No room for anything else. That you might be filled with the goodness of God. Or the fullness of God, excuse me. That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. What is the fullness of God? What is the fullness of God? The word itself in the Greek means completion. But what does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? That means there's no room for anything else. That means you're so full, one more drop would spill over. Now, what is the fullness of God? How much is God's fullness? There's no way for us to comprehend that. There's no way for us to even understand it. There's no way for us to even think to the, to the, uh, to stretch our minds to think to the limits of how big God is. The Bible says you can be filled with the fullness of God. That doesn't mean you've got all of God inside you. That means all of you is filled with God. There's always going to be more of God than we can get in us. But it means we can, everything that is in us can be Him. That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Notice what it is, what it is, what causes us to be filled with all the fullness of God. Knowing the love of God. Experiencing the love of God causes us to be filled with His fullness. 
Verse 20. Now unto him. Here's Paul wrapping it up. Paul has just prayed that the church, God's picture, the Holy Ghost inspired picture of the church is the believer, the individual believer ruled by faith, accessing the power of God to defeat every work of the enemy in every area of his life. So that everything in us is God. So that we're equipped with God's power and God's goodness to handle every situation no matter what happens. And the result is we glorify him. If we could ever get our head around the fact that God God is glorified when we win, I think we'd pursue winning a lot more. God's not glorified when you lose. God's not glorified by you trying to make excuses for, well, we don't understand why these things happen. God's glorified by you being the victor. God's glorified by your victory. What does the Bible say our victory is caused by? John wrote to the church and said, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. It's all the same thing, folks. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Paul does the same thing he's done before in Ephesians, and that is he starts stacking on superlatives. Exceeding abundantly does not exist in the Greek language. Paul takes words that mean super much, and he stacks them up on top of each other. It's unknown in any other Greek writings of the day. Well, why does he do it? Because he wants us to understand that when you start talking about God, it's unlike and way beyond anything that anybody would normally use language to describe. Now unto him that's able to do exceeding abundantly, so far beyond anything that we think, ask or think, that nobody's ever even imagined it. Now, why does he tell us this? Because he wants us to know what power is available to us when we walk by faith. Now unto him that's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, folks, if he just said ask, that's a lot. But then again, you've got some people that won't ask for much because they don't expect much. But once he adds that next couple of words, or think, he's got everybody. He's saying God is able to do super, super, super much more than anything you could ever even think. Not just what you ask. Super much more than you could ever even think. Sounds like a lot. If that's true, how big a problem is the devil really going to be? How hard is it for you to think of victory over the devil in every area of your life? You can make that thought in less than a second. I win. Nice thought. God's able to do way, 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 much more than that. Way, way, way. But how? Yeah, that's what we want, Pastor Mike. We want him to do it. How's he going to do it? Notice the last phrase. According or by the power that works in us. 
by the power that works in us. How do you access the power that works in us? Faith. Faith is the only way that you can access that power that works in you. God is able to do more than you can ever ask, more than you can ever think or imagine by the power that's already in you. In other words, there is no limit to faith. There is no limit to what faith will produce. There is no limit to what faith will produce. And people start getting starry-eyed. So say, well, you mean I could believe for $100 million? Yeah. You mean I could believe for a trillion dollars? Yeah, if you could believe for it. You mean I could believe for God to give me 10 million oil wells? You could have faith for it, yeah. And it would produce. There is no limit if the Holy Ghost is telling us the truth. There is no limit to what faith will produce. None. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I was thinking about this. Doesn't matter what you thought of. God's bigger. Yeah, but I was thinking about something that's never been done before. The Bible says you can have that through faith by the power that works in you. Folks, Jesus really meant it when he said nothing is impossible to him that believes. I mean, he really, 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 really meant it. Nothing is impossible to him that believes. Nothing is impossible to him that believes. Now, what's going to be the result of all of these things, this faith working in us and conquering the work of the enemy in our lives? Notice verse 21. Unto him be glory. Unto him be glory. In other words, the end result of all this faith bringing all this power to bear in our lives so that we win in every aspect of our lives glorifies God. Unto him be glory. Through the operation of your faith, through the operation of the faith of the believer, simply believing in and acting on his word, unto him be glory in the church, through the believers, in the church, by or through Christ Jesus, for how long? Throughout all ages. Throughout all ages. World without end. Folks, you need to understand something. We're so earthly conscious and earthly focused in our thinking. We, we make a place for heaven in our thoughts and in our expectations. But our, even our thoughts of heaven are earth-related. For example, here's one of me. We seem to have a, a, a tendency to think about things in terms of earthly results Believing God for results, believing God to get answers, believing God for victories here on the earth. And then after this earth is over, we just kind of float, we just kind of relax, and it's like we go to heaven. But what do you do once you get there? See, that's kind of the end of all things for us because we're so earthly focused. It's like earth is the real important things until we get to heaven, and then when, once we get to heaven, we just coast for eternity. You think God is the kind of God that doesn't have something planned for you once you get there? A lot of people are going to be surprised that heaven has something to do. That when they get there, there's really going to be something to do. 
A lot of the church is going to be surprised that there are ages yet to come. But the Bible tells us so. This last verse, verse 21, says that the operation of your faith, that the operation of your faith here on the earth will bring glory to God throughout untold ages for all of eternity. That might not be good news for people that don't know how to walk by faith. What are they going to have to glorify God for all eternity? How is faith going to work in heaven like it does here? There's no devil there. There's no resistance there. There's no natural circumstance to believe in contradiction to. This is the time for faith to operate. This is the time to glorify God through the results of your faith. This is the place for Christ to dwell in your heart by faith and to be rooted and grounded in love. Now, once you get to heaven, what are we going to do? Have a school in heaven to learn how to believe God there? That doesn't make sense. This is the only realm that we know of and that's ever even spoken to us about that's going to have the resistance or the opportunity to utilize your faith right here, right now. The only time that you're ever going to have the opportunity to defeat the devil is right here and right now. And it's the defeat of the devil that Jesus came to accomplish to fulfill God's eternal purpose before the world was ever created to glorify himself through you. Now make a suggestion. Quit letting the devil beat you up here. Whatever it takes, whatever effort you have to expend, find the truth of the word of God and start believing it so that you can gain a victory over him. One victory at a time, area by area. but victories over the devil so that you'll have something to glorify God with throughout the ages. That's the eternal purpose of God for his people. Unto him be glory. The only way you can glorify God is defeating the devil. And that's God's eternal purpose for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your great plan of redemption. Father, we pray for ourselves, even as Paul prayed for the church, that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ would grant unto us to be strengthened with might by our spirit, by, in our inner man by the Holy Spirit. Strengthened with might that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, Lord, and that we being rooted and grounded in love would be able to comprehend with all the saints the entirety of the word the times that we live in and how soon it is for Jesus to return. Our love relationship with God and our love relationship with other believers and that we would know, experience the love of Christ which passes human understanding that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Father, help us to see the greatness of your love Help us to see the greatness of your power extended toward us through the finished work of Jesus. Help us to see, Father, that nothing is impossible or ever will be to us as believers. 
Father, we recognize that this is the manner in which we glorify you. By the utilization of our faith to gain victories after victory after victory over the enemy. What a privilege it is, Father, to be a part of your family. What a privilege it is, Father, to glorify you through victories, not through defeats. To glorify you through healing and not through sickness. To glorify you through abundance and not through lack. To glorify you through peace and not through turmoil. Thank you, Father, for the goodness of your plan, the goodness of your redemptive plan. In Christ Jesus, amen. 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 You've got an assignment this week. You ready for it? Whip up on the devil's head everywhere you find him. That's how you glorify God. Amen. Let's all stand. Hallelujah. While you stand, when you stand, let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Hallelujah. God could have set this up any way he wanted to. He could have made glorifying him be through your defeat instead of your victory. But it's your victory that brings him glory. We love you, Father. We thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you that we're more than conquerors through Christ Jesus conquerors in every area and this is the victory that overcomes the world even our faith blessed be your holy name lord jesus blessed be the name of jesus we claim victory in every area of our lives father according to your word we claim victory over sickness we claim victory over disease we claim victory over lack we can claim victory over turmoil we claim victory over all the work of the enemy In Jesus' precious name. We thank you for it, Father. Amen. Amen. Say it with me. The victory is mine. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.